Good evening. Tonight's second Bible reading is from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, starting from verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he'd called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make careful search of this child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Thanks, Helen. It'd be good if you could keep your Bible open. We'll be working through that passage, Matthew chapter 2. And if you're a note taker or if you'd like to follow along where we're going, you'll find an outline in the handout which may be useful uh, for you as well. But as we begin, I'm going to pray. So would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for revealing yourself to us in your word and in your son. As we hear and see both now, would you be at work in our hearts, bowing our knees and filling our hearts with joy. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some things in life are guaranteed to divide. Some things in life are guaranteed to divide. Let me uh, illustrate what I mean for you. In a minute, I'm going to put up a bunch of about six or so different questions. We'll go through one by one. And what I want you to do is to vote on what you think your answer is or what for you personally your answer is to those questions. And what we're going to see is if for any of the six, we can get a unified opinion across our church. And so first question, do you prefer Star Wars, Star Trek or neither? So I'm going to go through, put your hand up for whichever it is. Hands up if you prefer Star Wars yeah, decent amount. Hands up if you prefer Star Trek. Two are good, <laughs> better than nothing. Hands up if you prefer neither. It's just not your, your forte. Okay, that's helpful, but no unity. What about this one? Do you prefer cats, dogs, or goldfish? So I'll, I'll say them. Hands up for cats. Okay, decent amount. Hands up for dogs. A little bit more. Hands up for goldfish. A handful. Oh, good. That's again, a little better than nothing. Oh, what about this one? Do you prefer pizza with pineapple, without pineapple? Or third option, for those of us who are smart, no pizza at all, because cheese is a truly revolting subject, a substance. I hate cheese. Um, so hands up if you're, if you're pizza with pineapple. Hands up. Thank you. Hands up if you're pizza without pineapple. Thank you, and then hands up, no pizza at all, because it's a revolting substance. Okay, you can see we're, we're no unity still. What about this one, summer, winter, or in between? Hands up for summer. Okay, thank you. Hands up for winter. 
Good. Hands up for somewhere in between. Okay, not much luck yet. Just two more. Hopefully we can get united for the next two. Do you prefer staying up late, getting up early? Or do you prefer, are you like John, who likes to stay up late and get up early? So hands up if you like staying up late. That's your, your game. Okay, hands up if you like getting up early. And John's not here, so he, he can't vote for that. Uh, final one. This is a controversial, in, controversial one in our household. Do you prefer eating the best parts of your meal first or saving the best part to last? Hands up if when you get your meal, you eat the best part first. Hands up if that's you. Oh, a decent amount. Hands up if you save the best part to last. Good job. That's the correct answer. So you can see, though, that across those six questions... There's no unity. Some things are guaranteed to divide. And we, I mean, they might be light examples, but we get that principle, don't we? We all understand that if we want to divide people at the Christmas work party this year, then we just need to ask them about politics. If we ask someone about their political view, it will instantly devolve into chaos. Or what about climate change? If you were to begin talking to someone about climate change at work, you'd find a varied uh, selection of different opinions or what about Donald Trump? I guarantee if you asked someone at work or at your family gathering this year what their thoughts are on Donald Trump, fireworks will begin. We know that. Some things in life are guaranteed to divide. And today, we're going to think about the thing that is guaranteed to divide the absolute most. Far more than even Donald Trump. What is it? Well, it's not pets or pineapples. It's not pizza or politics. It's Jesus. Jesus splits the room. That is what Matthew is telling us in this passage, which may not actually be what we want at Christmas time. We want a Christmas where everyone is together, where there's peace at the family Christmas dinner table, where no one's yelling, no one's arguing, no one's bickering, where there's no silent, uh, silent treatment or cold shoulder, where everyone is together and happy. Isn't that what we want at Christmas time? A time of peace on earth. But Matthew, the one who met Jesus, the one who knew Jesus, tells us, if that is your view on Christmas, then you haven't really understood it. In fact, he says more than that. He also tells us, and you have to pick a side. You have to pick a side. Because that's actually the last thing we want to do at Christmas, isn't it? Pick a side. But we have to. And he says that some are going to love Jesus, and some are going to loathe Jesus. And it has been that way since the very first Christmas. See, that very first Christmas was a time of division. Of who? Well, between those who want to follow Jesus and those who don't. And so today in our passage, we'll see two categories. We'll see that some will do anything to follow Jesus and some will do anything to hinder Jesus. And then once we've looked at that and once we've seen what it's saying, we'll have a think about what that means for us. But let's get into it. For, to start off with, we'll think about those who'll do anything to follow this king, Jesus. And that's the Magi or the wise men. I don't know if you know much about them, but historically we might think of them as kings, but they're not. They were actually Eastern religious leaders. They were more like astrologers or astronomers. They used to look at the stars and try and make predictions. And as part of that, they often then attended the coronation of kings to kind of give their, their blessing or their approval. And what that meant was they were extremely highly respected, but they were also feared. 
They were feared because they were mysterious, and they were feared because they did lots of weird things, like they used to cut open animals and use the animal kind of organs in their rituals. And these enigmatic Eastern kingmakers, they come seeking Jesus. Have a look at verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Now we might be quite familiar with the Christmas story. We see it on Christmas cards, we see it in movies, we sing songs about it. But the only problem is that often the mental picture we have of Christmas might actually be different to what the Bible tells us. And maybe we have the mental picture that there were three wise men who kind of come into Jerusalem without much fuss. They somehow managed to see King Herod and then they sneak out again. That's not what actually would have happened. Uh, for starters, there likely were not three of them. Uh, we typically think that there's three because of the, the number of gifts. But the passage doesn't actually say that. I don't know if you noticed that. It doesn't actually say how many wise men there were. Might have been three, might have been two, might have been ten. And they certainly wouldn't have come quietly. I mean, think about it. They get to see the king, but kings do not just let any old visitor in to see them. If I went to um, England and went into the palace there and I tried to see King Charles, the guards would laugh me out of the room because only the most exalted of guests get to see the king. And when they do, they don't come quietly, but with much pomp and fanfare. So these, these magi probably would have come marching into Jerusalem with trumpets blaring and banners waving in the wind. Imagine then how intimidating it would have been for the people as they look and see these Eastern religious leaders coming in on giant Arabian horses or camels. They also likely wouldn't have been alone. It was a dangerous journey from the east to Jerusalem, so they probably would have had bodyguards with them, big guys on big horses with big weapons, shields and helmets and spears all, all gleaming in the sun. It's also a long journey, so they probably would have had a big baggage train with them, donkeys, horses, camels, all loaded with supplies. And so it's no wonder that they would have caused a stir. People would have been looking at them thinking, what is this all about? What is going on? And in fact, that's what we might wonder as well. But fortunately, the Magi don't leave us wondering. They don't leave us speculating. They tell us exactly what they did come for. Have a look at verse 2. The Magi asked, where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. They're here for this new king. They're here for Jesus. And what we see then in the Magi is that some will do anything to follow this king. They left the comfort of their homes. They traveled a tremendous distance. So the east here is likely either Arabia, Persia, or Babylon, all of which take months to travel from to Jerusalem. They were willing to go through danger. They were willing to go through great expense and cost. And they were even willing to risk everything, even their own lives, by asking for this new king from the existing king, which is a risky strategy. See, some people will do anything to follow this king. But of course, that's in contrast in our story to others, to Herod and the Jewish leaders. While the Magi are the ones who know all about Jesus, the ones who should know all about Jesus, don't. They're just kind of obliviously going about their daily life until these magi turn up on their doorstep and then they're like, wait, what king? They're remarkably oblivious. We'll start with Herod. Uh, like the wise man, he's also a non-Jew, so he was an Idumean and he was established as the king of Jerusalem by the Roman government. 
And imagine being him here. He's sitting in his palace. He's enjoying being king. Being king's great. He has the best food. He has servants to look after him. Gets to live in a wonderful palace. So I'm sure he's loving life. But then in comes his, one of his retainers. One of his servants. And they, they say, these wise men have arrived. Kingmakers from the east. And they're saying there's a new king. How would you feel if that was you? What would you be thinking? Well, for Herod, he's clearly concerned. Being king's great. He doesn't want to lose it. And so it's no wonder then that he's disturbed. Have a look at verse 3. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. And now the one thing we know, one of the things we know about Herod from history was that he was a man who would do anything to stay king. And he did. We know that Herod killed three of his own sons. He killed his wife, his mother-in-law, his brother-in-law, his uncle. He killed them all to make sure that he remained king. In fact, so well known was he for being willing to kill anyone to stay king that there's a a famous saying that Caesar Augustus declared. He said, it is better to be Herod's pig than his son. It's better to be his pig than his son because he is more likely to kill you if you are his son than if you are his pig. This is the guy we're talking about. And this is a man who will do anything to stay king. And so this is a guy who will do anything to hinder this new king. And so in light of that, he concocts a plan. He calls in the teachers of the law to, um, to find out more about this rival king. Have a look at verses 4 and 5. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied. Now, if Herod, if Herod is actively hostile to this new king, the religious leaders here, they're just apathetic They should be the ones who are the most vigorously trying to find God's chosen king. After all, they are the religious leaders. They're the pastors, the ministers, the elders, the board of management, the growth group leaders. They should be the ones leading the charge to find this king. But here instead, what we get is just a feeling of indifference. When Herod asks, they can instantly quote where this king's born. They know it's Micah 5 and they say Bethlehem. But then did you notice what they do? Nothing. They don't go and investigate. They don't look into it any further. And in fact, Bethlehem was only around 10 kilometers or so from Jerusalem. Now, even someone like me that's an extremely slow runner, I could run 10 kilometers in about an hour or so. So they could be there in an hour. They could be there and check it out for themselves in an hour. And yet, they don't even lift a sandal. They do not even lift a sandal. They do not make any effort to go and try and find this king. And what it shows us is that it's possible to know our Bible back to front, like they did, but not have a relationship with Jesus. If our spiritual life is stale, then today is a great day to know Jesus afresh. Once Herod knows where this new king is, he wants the Magi to come and report back so that he can worship him. Now, we might think that this murderous tyrant has maybe flipped a new leaf, he's turned a new page, but of course, if we know the story, we know he hasn't. In verse 16, just after our passage, this brutal tyrant murders 
every single boy under the age of two to try and kill this new king. It's a horrific thing. It's a terrible thing. Innocent children killed. But it shows us the grim truth. This is a man who will do anything to hinder this new king. The focus then shifts back to the Magi. Having found the location, they continue on their way. Have a look at verses 9 to 11. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. So they keep following the star on and on and on until it finally stops over the house. And then they're overjoyed because their long journey has finished. They have found this new king. And so they go inside to meet the king. Just see what they do as they see him? They worship him. Verse 11. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They see this new king, and they pay homage to him. They do it in two forms. Firstly, they bow down to him. So imagine what a sight this would have been. These stately, imposing men, dressed in smooth silks and the finest of fashion, faces covered with majestic oiled beards, imposing turbans on their head, gold chains, rings on their fingers. These stately men bowing down to a mere child, bending their knee, touching their forehead to ground, perhaps beard even scraping in the dust, all to worship a young child. Because remember here, Jesus is not a baby the Greek word used here is child, not baby, and they are in a house, not the stable. I don't know if you noticed that. And so what it means is that Jesus could have been any age up to about two or so. And it's such a bizarre scene, isn't it? It would be like seeing a governor general or a high court judge come and bow down to one of the kids in our church. Imagine seeing one of them bow down to Hattie. Now, we love Hattie. Hattie's great. But I don't know whether we'd find it uh, expected if a high court judge was to bow down before her. It's just a completely bizarre scene, isn't it? But it shows us some will do anything to follow this king. Not only do they humble themselves by bowing, they also bring extravagant and expensive gifts. They give gold frankincense and myrrh. Now it's fair to say these are not typical gifts. We know that when babies are born, people give gifts. When Levi was born, a whole bunch of people gave us gifts. It was great. Some gave uh, baby toys, some gave clothes, and some kind souls from our church who remain nameless even gave donuts for mum and dad, and that was, the, that was the best gift. But you know what no one gave? No one gave gold. And there have been plenty of times where Cassie and I have gone to visit couples who have just had a baby to congratulate them. We always bring presents, nappies or blankets or a baby rattle. But you know what we have never taken? Frankincense or myrrh. I mean, I've never given that as a gift. They might seem like bizarre gifts to give. So what's going on? Well, each gift has a meaning. Gold is a kingly gift and an expensive one at that. I uh, had a little bit of a look into it. At the moment, it's about $3,000 per ounce gold. It is an expensive gift. It is the kind of gift you give to a king. What about frankincense? Well, from early on, the, the, the church has seen this as a symbol of deity. 
uh, incense and frankincense was used in kind of temple ritualistic worship of gods. And so this is a symbol of deity. And myrrh? Well, it's an embalming oil. It's a symbol of death. It's what you put with dead bodies. And so these three gifts represent Jesus' kingship, his deity, and his coming death. You can see how they're tremendously significant. And they're all extremely expensive. See, these magi are putting their money where their mouth is. They brought the best they had and they gave it to Jesus because they know that he is worth everything. But what's particularly amazing about it is that these are not Jews. These are Gentiles. These are people from outside of God's chosen people. And yet still, they will do anything to follow this king. And Matthew's showing us then right from the start of his gospel that this new king, King Jesus, is a king for all people. It's not, he's not just a king of the Jews. He's not just a king for those who are close by. He's not just a king for those who grew up in a religious family. This king is the king of the whole world for all people. And so regardless how far away from God you feel today, Jesus is here for you because he is here for all people. Now at the start, that's our passage, at the start we said that some things in life are guaranteed to divide and nothing is guaranteed to divide more than Jesus. Now that's what we see in our passage, we see that some will do anything to follow him and some will do anything to hinder him. Some of us will love him like the Magi from the East and some will loathe him like Herod. But why does it matter? Well, it matters because Jesus is still the king of the universe. And kings demand obedience from those living in their kingdom. Now, we know that's the case. Think about King Charles in England, whose head is on their money. That's King Charles. Or do you know what the English national anthem is? It is God save the king. Their whole national anthem is about the king. And in fact, in some countries, it's actually illegal to insult the king. In Thailand, it is a criminal offence to insult the monarch. In 2017, a Thai man posted 10 different Facebook images that was insulting the Thai royalty. And do you know what punishment he received? 35 years in jail. And that was seen as lenient. That was cut down from 70. A 35-year jail sentence for insulting the king. So they realize that it is a big deal to insult the king. The king is owed allegiance and homage because they live in the king's domain. And it is no different with Jesus, except that his kingdom isn't just England, it isn't just Thailand or some other worldly province, but rather he's the king of the whole universe. It all belongs to him. It is all under his rule. And that's because he made it. Now this here is one of the Bibles I used to use with Levi. It's called Hugger Bible. It's got nice um, soft stuff on the top. Uh, he loves hugging it. This is one of the ones I used to read for uh, his, his bedtime, Bible stories. And I love, one the, I love them all, but I love one particular page on it. Now, it's a little bit small. That's one of the pages. So I'm going to read what that text says for you. Uh, this is what it says. For, it's for little kids, but I love it. It says this. Little one who made the seas, who made the birds, who made the bees who made the sun all big and bright and twinkly stars to shine at night. God made them all, oh yes, it's true. 
Yes, little one, and God made you. And see, that is why Jesus is our king, because Jesus is God. And God made all things. God made the whole universe, everything in it, including us. We would not have life if it was not for King Jesus. And so we owe him allegiance and homage. See, if Jesus is both our creator and the king of kings, which he is, then there is no space for arrival on the throne of our lives. See, as I've reflected on it this week, I've been particularly struck by the different responses of these groups in the passage. And particularly, we might look at Herod, and we might think, what a revolting man he is. And that's true, he is. It's a terrible thing to do, to go and kill innocent children. And we might be horrified by that, and we should be. But we might easily look at that and think, I would never do that. And in God's kindness, I hope we wouldn't. But while it's easy to look at the extreme of that, actually, I think inside of us all, there is a little bit of Herod inside of each of us. Inside of each of us, there is a little king who sees a rival power to our throne. Inside of each of us, there's a little king who sees this other king as a threat to our pride. Inside of each of us, there's a little king who sees a rival authority as a threat to our autonomy. See, while we might not be as overt about it as Herod, we still face that same temptation The same challenge, the temptation to try and stay the king of our own lives rather than bow the knee to King Jesus. And yet, Jesus came to turn hostile hearts towards him. And he did it by leaving his heavenly throne to come down to the world to look after us and to love us. One of my favorite songs at the moment is a song called How Many Kings. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's a great song. It tells at least much of the Christmas story. And I love how it captures this idea. This is what it says. First verse on the chorus. It says, obviously talking about the wise man, follow the star to a place unexpected. Would you believe after all we've projected, a child in a manger, lowly and small, the weakest of all, unlikeliest hero, wrapped in his mother's shawl, just a child, Is this who we've waited for? Because how many kings stepped down from their thrones? How many lords have abandoned their homes? How many greats have become the least for me? And how many gods have poured out their hearts to romance a world that is torn all apart? How many fathers gave up their sons for me? Only one did that for me. All for me and all for you. And doesn't that capture it so well? What kind of a king steps down off his throne for his subjects, for me and for you? What kind of a Lord leaves his home for his subjects, for me and for you? And how many truly great people would humble themselves for one that is more lowly than they are, for one that is beneath them, for me and for you? How many gods would pour themselves out for their creation, for me and for you? And the real kicker, How many fathers would give up their son for me and for you? Only one did that. Only one. Only King Jesus. And why did he do it? Well, it's all for me and it's all for you. That is the kind of king that King Jesus is. 
that is the kind of king that is a king worth following. Some things in life are guaranteed to divide and nothing is guaranteed to divide as much as King Jesus. Some will do anything to follow him and some will do anything to hinder him. And so the question I want to leave you with today is this. Which one will you be? Which one will you be? Will you ignore him like the religious leaders did? They knew the facts about him. They knew what scripture said about him. But they were just completely indifferent. Now, we might be able to do that to a worldly king, but not to King Jesus. If that is what we choose to do, then one day we will have to stand before his throne and explain why. And on that day, apathy and indifference will not be an excuse. Don't let that be you. Or will we be one who is actively hostile towards this king, like Herod was? See, Herod could not bring himself to let go of his own little kingdom. He didn't want to cede control to King Jesus. He didn't want to let go of control of his own life. I wonder, is that you tonight? Are you unwilling to hand over control of your life to someone else? Or is there an area, a part of your life, that you don't want to let go of and hand over control to? Just like the indifferent, any who go on this pathway will one day have to stand before King Jesus and give account for that. And that will not be a good day. Don't let that be you either. But there's the one final option left. Will you seek him wholeheartedly, doing anything you can to find him? And once you find him, to worship him. Will you bring your gifts, everything you have, and everything you are, in wholehearted worship of this king? See, this is the story of Christmas. A story of the king of heaven coming down into the world as a baby. And why did he do it? It was all for me, and it was all for you. I'm going to pray and thank God for that. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story of the wise men. We thank you for this story of how they are willing, were willing to do anything to find King Jesus and to follow King Jesus. Would you help that be us? Help us to find him, to bow the knee to him, to give him everything we are. Would that be us, we ask? Help us in this way, please. But thank you for the warning it gives us as well, the warning of the apathy of the religious leaders. Help that not to be us. And even more so, help us not to have the... Uh, the hostility, the hatred that King Herod has for Jesus. We confess, we look at that and it, it seems like, of course, we'd never do that. But actually, we know deep down inside of us, there is a little bit of Herod in each of us. Would you help us? Would you help us to avoid being like Herod then? Help us to give control over to Jesus, King Jesus. Help us to give our lives to him. Thank you that he is a, he is a king worth worshipping. He's a king who is willing to humble himself even to the point of death on a cross for us, his servants. Thank you, that's the kind of king he is. Would you help us to love him more and serve him more? We pray this in his name. Amen.